0: Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Nat Strafacci on the show. Nat is a licensed therapist, clinical supervisor, psychic medium, and spiritual herbalist living and working on Lenape and Yokuts land. Their private practice centers the healing of queer and trans people of color at the intersection of spirituality and mental health. They are a graduate of Columbia University School of Social Work and the Sacred Vibes Apothecary Spiritual Herbalism Apprenticeship Program. Informed by almost 15 years of school and community based work, Nat also provides consultation and training to groups and organizations seeking to deepen their understanding of gender, sexuality, pleasure, trauma, and intuition. Nat also offers tarot, mediumship, and consultation sessions at In Las Nubes Spa in Tower District. I really enjoyed talking with Nat, and I love that they are relocated here and will share their knowledge and experience with us. Let's meet Nat, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best! So, Nat, where do you like to eat in Fresno?
1: I've been thinking a lot about this question because I'm new to living here full-time. But I will say I've had a couple of really amazing experiences. Okay, so first I have to say my aunt's house. That's number one. Okay. And... I went sometimes. I've been to the farmer's market a few times, and the tamal place is really good because they're massive. And then I've also been to Cochinito Contento. That was pretty good. But I'm very open to suggestions because yeah. I know there's a lot of really amazing food here.
0: Okay. Which, which farmer's market were you referring to?
1: The one with like the over, the...
0: Oh, yeah, it's like the beautiful overhang with the yes. plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, do you remember the name of the, is it a, a tamal stand?
1: I, it is, and I don't remember the name.
0: Okay. Well, what do you like about it?
1: Well, the tamales are massive. <laughs> and so, it's really nice to eat at like 9 a.m. when it's a little bit cold while you're shopping. So. <laughs>
0: yes, we definitely do portions well here. I think that's a, a strong suit. And then, oh, well, sorry, what was the name of the second place you mentioned?
1: Cochinito Contento. It's, yeah. um, it's in Tower
0: Okay, okay. Yeah. What do you like about that place?
1: It's pretty good enchiladas. <laughs> okay.
0: What what kind?
1: I got the enchiladas de pollo in the green sauce. Okay, yes, mm-hmm. I, love,
0: I love enchiladas too. And I, I love them all different ways. Kind of like the, I mean, I grew up with those, whatever those like white mom in the suburbs enchiladas are, you know, with like the, <laughs> almost like, I think, and I think I remember, maybe this was like a, like a Mexican "quote unquote" casserole with like there was like Doritos like crumpled or something. I, oh. I I have a I have I have love for a lot of things. I don't know if I'll ever make that myself, but I can appreciate a whole range of different options. The traditional kind of very simple Oaxacan style enchiladas to something mm-hmm. more complex, and so that's that's a great recommendation. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to jump into kind of your background and education first, before we jump into some more topics related to therapy and some of the other practices you engage in. First, kind of a simple but maybe hard question in some ways. What makes people from the San Diego area unique?
1: Hmm. I don't know. I think that's hard for me to answer because I haven't lived there as an adult. So Mm -hmm. I left...
0: Well, okay. how how did it shape you? Let me say
1: that. How did people... Well, I will speak directly to Escondido. Okay. Uh, so that's where I was born in LA and I grew up in Escondido and that's where I spent all of my time. How are they unique and how did Escondido shape me? I think that and my community and friendships I formed there played a role... It kind of set the tone for myself as a young adult in terms of chosen family and creating friendships and connections where you got you could rely on one another share resources get like emotional support maybe you weren't getting in other places like at school or at home so I would say that's one way it's really shaped me
0: okay so, your education is a kind of a, it seems, at least from the outside, it's a mixture of more kind of alternative programs and then more traditional programs like the social work program. What did you learn from each and how did they influence this kind of path of integration that it seems like uh, your mm-hmm. practice is on?
1: Yeah. So, I'm going to quote one of my teachers, Karen Rose, <laughs> who she taught me about spiritual herbalism and. She runs the apprenticeship I completed. She said it's interesting that we use the term alternative for something that's original. So I would say my more original training is about unlearning and unpacking systems and finding my own personal history and family history and community history and then i would say my western training is about figuring out how to refine clinical skill sets that are practiced and informed through an unlearning lens
0: so how do you how do those speak to each other i guess in some ways
1: totally well the field of social work and mental health care and therapy Particularly in the United States, is going through a huge transformation right now. Traditionally, we have viewed mental health care as very singular. We treat the individual, that's it. And so, like, we cannot separate our minds from our bodies, right? Like, if we're feeling physically ill, or we're chronically ill, or we're experiencing disparities in access to health care, yeah, that's gonna affect how we think and how we feel about ourselves. Right. Hmm. So what I'm seeing in our field is a huge growth and expansion of realizing we have to understand people's communities and histories and lived experiences in the world and also acknowledge our own field's history. Right. Because before we had Western therapy, all of our people had ways of staying well right? We didn't call it therapy, but it was similar. We had healing practices. We had ways of staying well. And I think that that reckoning or that expansion or understanding of that is sort of being talked about in a more mainstream way. And that is really exciting to me. That's how I see them speaking to each other.
0: Yeah. I love the big tent feeling sometimes that we're getting right now where there's been some people excluded and some traditions excluded that are bringing. And then there's also some, you know, blind spots in mm-hmm. Western approaches to therapy, as you're describing, that are being pointed out. And my hope personally, and I, I think you share this based on what you're sh- saying, is that it just would be more inclusive and that we could we could point out the limitations, but also have a bigger tent where there's all sorts of you know whether it's somatic or whether it's you know different kinds of practices can all be under this uh, very inclusive tent together and that that's that's my hope and it sounds like you share that as well
1: absolutely that's one thing i talk about with my friends and networks a lot because it's like we're we're starting small we're we're starting to to build that but how awesome would it be to exist in a world where Your therapist, your EMDR provider could refer you to an herbalist. Your herbalist could refer you to a trauma therapist. Your trauma therapist could refer you to a psychic medium, right? There's so many ways to access healing. And we don't have to choose, right? We get to select, we get to pick up and put down when we want to engage and heal or whatever that means to folks. But that tent, that network is something I get really excited about.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's go ahead and jump right into some questions related to specifically individual therapy. So one of the things you mentioned in the description of your therapeutic practice is holding space.
1: I think when I use the term holding space, and I feel like it's so like overused now, I'm like, what does it even mean? For me, it's like we are able to create an environment where the stuff you feel the most shame or pain or confusion or joy with is out there without us having to rush to judge it or solve it or even make meaning of it like what if it can just exist and we can see how it feels to be out in the world be in the space between the two of us right because a lot of that sacred stuff that comes up Sometimes it hasn't been spoken out into existence before Mm. outside of a therapy session. So, what if we could experiment with feeling like, what does it feel like to have it out there? Mm. What's happening in your body right now? Mm. Are there memories being activated for you? Yeah. Um, Is this a secret or is this information or a desire you've been able to share? That maybe other people in your lineage have also had, but they haven't been able to say it out loud. That's how I understand holding space.
0: You know, sometimes I just want to move through thoughts mm-hmm.
1: without
0: without just sitting with them, because yeah. because if you move, if you if you sit with it, you have to feel all of its crevices, mm-hmm.
1: and, you know, mm-hmm. its
0: shapes, and you have to, you know, you're you're allowing it to bring up things in you that maybe. It's just easier to hide from yourself in some ways. And so yeah. I personally struggle with it. And I, th- I think it's incredibly hard, but I, you know, those times where I've had, where I've just sat there with it, those are the times where I felt like really myself, I think, in some ways. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
0: My next question I wanted to talk about is a word, and you just kind of mentioned it right now, but it caught my attention, which was the term ancestors. I've been thinking a lot about this concept of distributed causality recently, as well as the concept of free will reading that new book by Robert Sapolsky, the neurobiologist called Determined, uh, where he's making a case against the concept of free will and just looking at all these influences, whether they're biological, historical, your ancestors that influence kind of the decisions you make and the choices and your, you know, your outcomes ultimately. Mm -hmm. Do you think, can you discuss the role that our personal histories play in our destinies? And then whether you think we have free will or it's just a helpful illusion?
1: Hmm. hmm. That's a big one. What was that term you used at the beginning of your question?
0: Distributed causality. So meaning like I made this decision because I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents had a certain way of relating to me. The environment I'm in, like the room I'm in is hot right now. So there's all these things that are leading me to this particular decision I'm making. And so mm-hmm. then that raises the question of, am I making the decision from some kind of like Homunculus inside of my brain, or is it like all of the environment?
1: Yeah, the yeah. So, with lenses like that, I don't think it's an either or answer. I don't see it as binary. Yeah. I see it as a both and. Mm. So, what I understand about humans and our lived experiences and the experiences of our ancestors and our communities, depending on how we grew up, and also how we're treated in the world, how we walk in the world every day, how are we viewed, right? Are people threatened by us? Are people confused? Do they not understand us? Do they make assumptions about us? All of that shapes and plays a role in the choices we make, right? Because, For some people, they have to figure out how to survive, how to stay safe, how to avoid violence. And when a lot of your energy is being used up to survive, whether that's because your nervous system were amplified, it can be really hard to move into spaces of like that rest and digest into spaces of like, okay, who am I outside of surviving? Where am I outside of staying safe? And yeah, we have free will to figure that out, right? Like, I think that we have destinies. Everyone is given gifts, unique gifts to contribute to the community, to our world. And we part of our journey is figuring out what are those gifts? How do we... Offer them, while also staying safe, because everyone's lived experience is different. For some people who are don't haven't had to be concerned with survival either historically or in their own lives, that journey is going to look really different, you know. Mm-hmm. So I um, see it both and.
0: Yeah, and I think the kind of the emphasis on somatic practices right now is kind of touching on this as well, because seeing the body as part of the process of like how you work on healing given that there's this kind of new emphasis on somatic practices. Do you, do you see, what do you see the role of talk therapy in that kind of environment?
1: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So one thing I want to sort of course, correct is somatics aren't new, right? Somatic work and body work. That's like indigenous medicine, like those are ancient healing technologies. Adopting somatic practice is into Western therapy. That's what's new. Mm -hmm. And so to be with the body and to be with the nervous system and educate ourselves about, oh, wait a second. When I feel Emotionally shut down when my heart races really fast, when my stomach starts to hurt, when I'm around somebody or I'm in a certain situation or somebody talks to me a certain way, that's information for me. Something is not right, right? I see mental health care practitioners incorporating somatic work as being incredibly valuable and necessary in moving our field forward. I think combining the two is so powerful. Um, And I've seen the results in my own practice, and then also in my own work in therapy. For me, it's kind of like you can't have one without the other. So I love seeing it offered more and more in therapy spaces.
0: Hmm. Trauma is one of those concepts that's so important and so misunderstood at the same time. uh, Can you discuss how trauma influences our physical and mental health?
1: Yeah, sure. So when I say trauma, I speak of it in an expansive way. So I think there's sort of this older, dustier narrative that trauma is like a one-time lived event. And that is sometimes, that's part of it. But trauma can also be systemic. So if you are someone who has grown up in poverty or in an underserved community, it is your body has a response to not knowing where your next meal will come from or not feeling safe depending on the neighborhood you live in, right? That's trauma. I also understand trauma to be ancestral and inherited, right? So epigenetics, right? It can be encoded into our DNA. It can be passed down to you, And so if you are from a community that has been historically oppressed or marginalized or colonized, right, come from a violent history, maybe you're a refugee or your parents are refugees, that is also how I understand trauma. So how it affects us, the question was mentally and physically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we're exposed to trauma from an early age, it can affect how our brains develop. I, I kind of like to use the image of like the saber-toothed tiger, right? So our trauma response, it lives in our reptilian brain, our brainstem. That's the oldest part of our brain. So when, <clears throat> when we are being chased by saber-toothed tigers 40,000 years ago, that's fight or flight was keeping us safe. Today, we're not being chased by saber tooth tigers, but we have a whole lot of other stuff we're trying to survive. Or maybe we haven't had any lived experience, but we grew up in a neighborhood or from a family who's had to. We can still jump into those fight or flight modes and be in those extended periods of stress for so long. That impacts the cortisol that's being released, That impacts our digestion, right? When we're in fight or flight, blood flow is flowing away from our tummies and into our limbs in case we have to move really fast, right? Some people get really hot or cold, their hearts start to race. Think of what that does to a body over time. If you're going into that response every day, multiple times a day, multiple times a week, right? It has a huge impact on our physical health. And as we touched on earlier, if you're not feeling well in your body, if you're not feeling safe in your body, of course, it's going to impact your mental health as well.
0: Yeah. And if, if you're interested, listeners, in in this topic, I gabriel Mate's books are incredible on this and will show you in excruciating detail the different ways that trauma influences our physiology, our health, our well-being, everything. I just read the myth of, or is it? No, is a myth of normal or normal, something like that. Um, uh, yeah. And it was very eye-opening When you're working with people with different identity categories, okay. maybe you don't share or categories that have a lot of different intersectional relationships. How do you think about approaching clients with different backgrounds? Like how do you mm-hmm. approach thinking about okay. uh, conceptually therapy? Because you're talking about approaching it with people in a particular way that uh, leans into their backgrounds and their identities? How do you approach that is what I'm asking?
1: Definitely. So I am a therapist who it's really important for me to be out about who I am and be um, honest about parts of my identity, because it would feel inauthentic to my work if I wasn't, right? So I talk a lot about being queer, you know, gay. I use all the terms and also non-binary, right? I also identify as a person of color, Southeast Asian, mixed race, da, da, da. So those things I do not hide on my website and in our conversations. It's not about me. It's not about my identities. But those are locations and those are terms or words that kind of do an okay job at describing some of my lived experiences and how I walk and understand the world. I work with a lot of queer trans folks and queer trans folks of color who don't have those identities, right? They fall somewhere else on the spectrum. They have different racial and ethnic backgrounds. They have different stories, perhaps they're immigrants, they have different abilities. And so for me, it's really important for me to listen and to ask about it and to name it to name it in a sense that like, hey, that's not my lived experience. And so I'm also here to be humble and to learn from you because you're the expert in your identity, right? Right. Avoiding identity doesn't work (laughs) in therapy. (laughs) Yeah,
0: absolutely. Jump to your work in coaching and consultation now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what what are the benefits for a therapist beyond just personal enrichment to really focus on spirituality in their practice?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what are the benefits?
0: <laughs> like, how does it inform their practice? So, like for me, like I have my own spiritual journey that I'm on um, mm-hmm. that you know definitely informs the work that I do, and you know, I work in public education, and so being you know working on you know my daily meditation practice you know some of the somatic things i do to like allow me to be fully present with people when they i engage with them in my workplace and i'm just curious from a clinical okay. perspective how that informs people
1: totally i mean i would say number 1 well okay as someone i'm in private practice full time now but i was in nonprofits for like many years couple decades. <laughs> and spirituality, I feel like is important as a provider, as a clinician, because our healing exists beyond these systems that we have to be involved in, right, to get a paycheck. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a pretty universal pain and frustration of therapists and mental health care providers having to work in nonprofits, having to work in underfunded places, having to work in toxic environments where the client is not at the center of the work. Mm -hmm. And actually like the work happening is like anything but healing. And so for me, I found on my own journey of like spirituality and tapping into like, what that means to me is a remembering that like right like the work i'm doing the work i'm trying to create in the world my own healing journey the space i'm trying to hold for others that is so much bigger and more complex and expansive than like any 50 minute therapy session i'm going to hold at a nonprofit that's underpaying me and that is forcing us to diagnose somebody for insurance purposes, right? So I would say that's a pretty valuable takeaway. And also just navigating the burnout and the vicarious trauma that so many mental health care providers also deal with. I think it's super important to you staying well. Because if you're not a healthy provider, if you're not like a mental health care provider provider, rooted in your own care practices, whatever they are, you're not going to be a good therapist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm, my background is in teaching and teachers go through very similar things. Actually, my partner's dissertation was on teacher burnout in El Salvador amidst a lot of the violence that was happening there. And, you know, obviously I'm not teaching in El Salvador, but I, I definitely encountered bouts of burnout when I'm got 40 students in my classroom five periods a day and they're each coming with their own unique issues, strengths as well, obviously. But yeah, it's a challenge. and I think I think a lot of people just will do things to like numb the feeling as opposed to like approaching it from a place of like nourishing the body to allow you to exist in that space. But I also think that sometimes people just need to take a step back too. You know, sometimes people need a break. This is a whole topic we could go much <laughs> into. I want to go to a lighter section for a second, which I call overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff at you. You tell me whether you think it's over or underrated and why. So the first one is positive psychology, over or underrated.
1: I actually don't really know what positive psychology is. <laughs> like, oh, okay. I, I kind of get it, but... Like, I don't, I don't understand why people are talking about it so much. Maybe that's what I don't understand. Okay, so maybe
0: it's overrated in in the sense of like, what is it actually? I mean, I my understanding is it's it's, it's tools to make people happier. <laughs> I don't I don't know exactly, but I I read whatever that famous book was, by the positive psychology guru. I think it was called Stumbling Upon Happiness or something. And
1: oh, like- okay, well. Let me speak to that. I think that, of course, feeling happier is great. But I, how I define like healing and healing work, it's not, the angle is not to feel better, you know? I, of course, I want everyone to feel better. But for me, healing and the purpose of engaging in practices, whether it's like, you know, spirituality, therapy, da-da-da, it's about remembering how you have options And it's about remembering that you get to choose and you get to change. Yeah. And so if you feel better during that, great. But I guess feeling better to me feels like the surface of the actual work.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think some of my most meaningful moments are when I've addressed really hard things. And I wasn't just like, you know, happy running around, but I was like doing deep work. And those are the moments that have tended to be most meaningful for me. Mm. Uh, next one, soft one, softball one, New York style pizza over underrated.
1: Oh, I think it's rated just the right amount. <laughs> do you miss it? I do. I do. I miss pizza and I miss bagels.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, bagels, definitely. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, next one, psilocybin as a medicinal tool.
1: Oh, you know, I think that that is also ancient indigenous medicine. And so I would say that, yeah, we need to honor and respect that. So it's like rated just the right amount. But I think that the issue is I don't see it being honored and respected and the relationships built to it in the way that we need to in our current mainstream like field of social work and therapy. I think it's incredibly powerful medicine. And I think engaging in it requires a relationship and it requires practitioners who have gone on their own journey and are also like honoring the land, honoring the practitioners who like have made it their lives to share this medicine. So I guess it's like rated the right amount and we have to fix our Western idea and understanding of it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I feel like to, to add on to that, you know. I think you need to, if your only, if your only pathway to mental health is periodic mushroom trips, mm-hmm. um, that's, that does not replace the daily kind of quote unquote, more mundane practices of like working on your mental health every day with yourself and then weekly with a therapist. And like, I think sometimes people just want to not a quick fix, but like, oh, I I am now much more open-minded and compassionate. And so I'm just going to depend on this uh, substance to carry me forward as opposed to doing the real hard work of just like working on your stuff every day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Next one, mindfulness programs. Are those over or underrated?
1: I don't know because I haven't really like participated in any. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, again, I think it's like if it starts conversation and if it's like an accessible doorway to a helpful practice great but again it's like you know where is it leading you to is it leading you to like we want you to subscribe more money every month than, you yeah. know I don't know you know <laughs>
0: yes yes next one and this is one that my partner loves in particular I was curious your thoughts sound baths
1: yeah, I have not participated in a sound bath myself actually maybe that's not true I think it's another powerful like tool that can be used and again are we honoring where it comes from you know and are we honoring like who taught you this and like the lineage of using sound as healing
0: next one cold plunges
1: oh I mean I've never done a cold plunge but people who have rave about it so whatever works for your nervous system and resetting (laughs) your body great (laughs) perfect
0: all right. So we're going to jump back into uh, some more things about your practice I wanted to talk about. I want to start by talking about mediumship. These are things I'm not as familiar with. So I'm, I'm in a learning uh, phase absolutely from you. How did you develop and fine tune your extrasensory perception? And can you discuss some of the different categories of mm-hmm. clearness, I think is what they call it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a big question. Well, I grew up with stories in my family and different ways of understanding what I would use the term mediumship or intuition. And I think it maybe in my family would just be understood as like knowing or seeing, right? So I don't think it started with me, but I would say, you know, as a kid, I was like definitely very sensitive, hearing things, feeling... Reading the room, I always felt like adults were lying because I was just like, I know something's going on. I'm six. I don't understand like what it is exactly, but like, why is there tension, right? And I think most children do have that, right? Most of us are sort of, we have to recognize that many children are in touch with intuitive abilities strengthen strength like those are strong when we come into the world and then as we grow up they're kind of beaten out of us from capitalism but that's another thing I think for me I had um, a series of traumatic family occurrences and I'm named after someone in my family whose life was taken at a very young age And so I understand the events that played out and what got triggered in me is how I deepened my relationship to my family member and then therefore like other family members who had passed. So I think when all this was happening in my life, I was experiencing a lot of new sensations and it was scary and it was confusing. And then I found a teacher who I was able to work with, who was really able to sort of interpret and put into context what was happening for me. And a lot of mediums I've talked to have similar journeys where they were sensitive kids, they were seeing stuff, hearing stuff. And then, you know, there was significant trauma or a significant life event that kind of amplified or kicked something into gear. And then your journey of accepting it is a whole other thing, but I would say that's how it started for me and then growing my relationship to this practice has really been a practice of growing my relationship to my family and my history and learning more about my family and also learning more about my culture. Can you
0: tell us a story or two, obviously? keeping people anonymous for what this practice looks like for you?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, okay. So psychic mediumship is sitting down with someone and being open to messages that come through from a loved one who has died. So working with my teacher and training was a lot of, meditation, body-based work, and opening up to sight, sound, physical sensations that can happen when you're controlling the environment. So when you have your spiritual protections in place, when you're communicating, okay, I'm here, I'm open to receive from this time to this time, after 4 p.m., the kitchen is closed, right? So it's a really intentional space, where you're honoring, you're bringing your reverence and respect to the spirit who's ever whoever is coming through, and you're also bringing a little humor because this person was once a human and was once alive, walking on earth, and their quirks and weirdnesses and things that endear them to us, those tend to show up as well <laughs> in the space, right? So, folks will come through who how how so basically. When I sit with somebody, pretty early on, I'll get some information that will identify who we're sitting with, right? So a family recipe or a landscape that's really important to this person or a book of significance or even I've seen like the spirit will show me the person in front of me doing a very specific activity that the person did that morning while they were alone right? So something like that, that really speaks to, oh, who's in the room? They're here to share. Okay. So now that we know it's grandma or now that we know it's like cousin Joe, like this is who we're communicating with. This is who we're opening up to. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Is that a similar skill that's involved with tarot as well? And I've had more experiences with tarot, previous partner that practiced that. And so I, I got to experience that first, but in terms of your skill base, is that a similar kind of skill base you're bringing to that as well? Or is it different?
1: Well, with tarot, it's less about spirit communication and more about tapping into like intuitive knowing, right? So, and again, tarot is a tool of divination, but it doesn't have to be right. I think people access tarot in a lot of different ways. So you could be divining, but also you could just be like having a morning meditation with tarot. It's different. For me, when I sit with somebody, when they book an intuitive tarot session, it's about tuning in to that person's energy. So I'm feeling what's happening, maybe what's going on currently in their life. We're seeing what the cards have to say about that and any guidance. But I'm not opening myself up to communicating with somebody else, right? Sometimes somebody comes through and I'm like, hey, do you want to hear from this person? But typically, that takes a lot of energy. And I have like pretty, for the most part, I'll like put a boundary up around like that process as well, if that makes sense.
0: Okay. How, how would you talk with someone that is, let's say, maybe atheist, more materialist view of the world, you know, it's just, it's just Mather and atoms. And you're talking about some of these practices and skills. And how would you communicate with them about it? If that's just not their background, and they don't understand?
1: Yeah, I mean, kind of how I did with you, I if you don't believe in it, I don't care, that's fine. <laughs> like, I'm not here to convince anyone because I'm busy enough like sitting with people and holding space and figuring out how we can all heal. So if you don't believe in it, great, love and light. <laughs> okay.
0: So it's more just like uh, for people that, and that makes sense to me, you're not going to convince someone God exists or, I mean, you maybe you think you could, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, it comes from, you know, those are priors that people bring to a session or bring to, uh, you know, seeking help in a particular area. Um, I want to talk about two more things things before we talk about Fresno stuff. The first is about social media. There is this universe now of people on social media that are influencing in positive directions with psychology. And I think a lot of that's great. We also know that there's been a ton of research on the harmful aspects of social media and what it's, and I'm surrounded by teenagers who have addictions to their phones. You know, we've seen kind of the, some of the depression that can result from kids pursuing ideals on social media. And there's a lot of stuff on there. There's a lot of bullying that goes on. So how do you think about using that space that's very complicated?
1: Yeah, I think it it's that's what it is. It's complicated, right? I think that we have to understand that these tools have been developed to get us addicted to them. And so if we can engage with them, how do we engage with it in a way where it's not making us feel crappy, where we don't lose sense of time? And how can we harness them to like, learn new things, build community, maybe get a conversation started, but take it offline because these platforms are not made for nuanced conversation, conversation and understanding. They are not made. <laughs> for we're not our, our liberation is not going to be found on Instagram, right? I think they it can be a powerful tool to organize and to meet people and to share, but it has to go offline, right. So yeah. it's about how can we develop healthy relationships to it?
0: The next thing I want to ask you about is podcast. I've been listening to a few episodes. What are you trying to do with it and if there's one episode you would encourage people to listen to to get a taste what which would that be I know I know it's hard to pick between your babies you know and like I get that <laughs> I feel the same way you know I with my show like I think you should just pick what interests you at the end of the day but I'm sure that there's one's that you'd recommend
1: Yeah so I have a podcast called Therapy is Gay and what I'm trying to do with it is We're our conversations around mental health care, right? So expand our understanding of what is healing, what is therapy, and then also who is a therapist? What do they look like? Who are are they supposed to be? You know, they're not like a straight, white, cis, heterosexual, middle-class lady. You know, like therapists come in many different packages. And so really also queering this idea that the therapist has to be a blank slate or a neutral person. Therapy is not neutral. Therapy is political based on your lived experience in the world. And so my podcast is kind of just like talking about all of that. I have on many friends and mental health care providers. I only have season one right now, but I'm about to start releasing season two. Hey, hey. But if, oh God, I don't know. I don't know. know It's so
0: hard to pick one, but like, let's say a one, if you're just starting out or something that relates to something we've talked about today.
1: I would say it's a toss up between what happens in this, inside the session happens outside the session with T Molnar and then psychic mediums were just like you actually no rehabilitating our imaginations. That is a powerful one too. So those three. <laughs>
0: That's a great place to start. Uh, before we close with books, I wanted to ask a couple Fresno questions because you've relocated here. What are your some some of your initial observations given the work you do about Fresno, and what are some things that you hope to do in the community using your skill set uh, to help help our environment?
1: Totally. Well, okay. So what I've observed is there are so many projects and collaborations and small businesses that are just like down to support one another and that is so exciting to me. I would say something I want to to do here is I want to find all the queer and trans mental health care providers. I know there's great therapists here doing amazing work and I'm still new here so I would love to find and be connected to queer and trans programming but particularly queer and trans therapists who are out and talking about that. I would love to build community or a collective of queer and trans providers, not just therapists, but healers in general, talking about the work we do and why it's important and why now. So Mm -hmm. I would love to do that. Yeah. And just different events, markets, healing spaces, like workout classes. Like I have so many ideas and it feels exciting. I don't know. It feels exciting to be here in the city right now. So definitely like finding community is my number one.
0: Makes sense. We always close the same way. What are three books you'd recommend to listeners?
1: Okay. So one of my very favorite books is a memoir called Mean by Miriam Gerba. She is Chicana and she's from, I think she's from Santa Rosa, but she wrote an incredible memoir and it's devastating and hilarious I would also recommend What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu. And that is a really important personal account of what it means to be diagnosed with and live with and work through someone with complex PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. We have so much to learn about CPTSD and how it manifests and it's been a really amazing story to share with clients um, on their own healing journey because there's just not a lot out there of people talking so explicitly about like this diagnosis. And I think it's really important considering the collective grief and trauma we're continuing to recognize and experience. So definitely check out What My Bones Know. And then the third book, Oh man, Jordan, I only had two. All right. <laughs> a little pressure here. Yeah. Sour grapes by Jenny Zhang.
0: I've not heard uh, of that. I've heard of the other two. What's 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 that one about?
1: Yeah. So it is fiction, short stories, but she is Chinese American, grew up in New York City, and just really speaks to the immigrant experience in such a beautiful and complex and funny, and sad, and amazing way that I've never, I've never read before. I think we get a pretty single, flat, one-dimensional narrative of what it means to be an immigrant in this country, and she just, like, blows that up, so I'd highly recommend that.
0: Well, those all sound great. Thank you for those recommendations. To close, where can people uh, find you online, and how do they go about booking sessions. I know that, you know, I, I think it says on your website that you don't, you're not taking new clients for individual therapy right now, but how do people find you and what kinds of offerings do you have right now?
1: Yes. So I do offerings online and in person. So if you want to book a tarot session with me or a psychic medium session with me in person, you can find me at en Las Nubes. So the spa that's connected to Calle Michula in Tower District, really exciting. If you want to work with me online, you can reach out to me through my website. That's sunshadowhealing.com.
0: Wonderful. Well, Nat, this has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. I learned a lot and I really appreciate that you are here in Fresno with us.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Jordan. I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks for having me. Fresno's best.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating or review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash fresnosbest. We'll see you next time.